So, my plan for tonight, after we record this episode and I have my full-ass bottle of wine, is I have a coffee table I bought on Amazon, like, you know, three months ago, and the plan is to put it together tonight. And when I'm saying, like, coffee table, I'm not meaning, like, screw some legs in. This thing has, like, drawers that pull out. Like, it's it's involved. Oh my god, that's <laughs> right. I remember the picture of this now. <laughs> and... I am like, I don't think it's a good idea to try to do that after a bottle of wine. That has to be what happens because, you know, family coming into town in two days. Yeah, me being one of them. One of those family. (laughs) One of those people I have to impress. So that's, we're going to see what kind of disaster I make. Um, Although my TV stand I built after a certain amount of drinks. So, you know, maybe... It's just, that's how I work best. You know, honestly, I'm expecting perfection, so don't let me down. Well, I'm just you kidding. always <laughs> expect perfection from me, so it's not any different. Yeah, that's, but... to- that's totally a lie. I'm not like that at all. I was actually thinking that if you wanted help, we could do it when I get into town before our, you know, parents get in town. Ooh. Yeah, no, that's actually a better idea. <laughs> because then we'll both be having wine And we can just, you know, have two heads of drunk people doing it. I think it's perfect. Totally better than one. Yes. But anyways, hello everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Tyler. And I'm Brittany. And we did that backwards, I think, but... But I feel like you usually say your name first, but... I do. Not this time. Did you like introing this time? Did it feel really good? It did. I can see why you always want to do it. Yeah, 83 is all about you, I guess. It is. All right, Brittany actually doesn't have a case this episode. (laughs) Uh, She's just going to be watching. I'm just going to add colorful commentary. Perfect. It's like... um, Or black and white commentary. I don't know. It depends on what you're going to tell me. I mean, basically, it's like I'm the movie and you're the director uh, watching in the, like, commentary special. That who is actually going to watch that? Oh my god, that's really hateful, rude. No, not you, but like when you get a DVD, I don't think anyone is like, ah, shit, yeah, (laughs) I just got the core, I want to know what the director has to say about every scene, because it always winds up being like, oh, and we actually filmed this one, Um, I think they'd gotten Danishes that day, so... uh, (laughs) Hillary, uh, she'd, she'd wanted a blueberry one, we were out, so she had an apple one, and I... I think, like, three minutes into the first cut, we had to tell her, you know, oh, you had a piece of cinnamon on your uh, lips. So. <laughs> uh, in this scene, I actually remember doing this one because Steven Spielberg had actually uh, called me earlier that day to chat about he, he got a new golf club. Um, and so, yeah, afterwards, he and I went <laughs> to, uh, you know, get Waldorf South. And you're like, I don't <laughs> care. <laughs> that was either something you actually heard on a director's commentary or you did really good at riffing that thank you i would that was fully um impromptu you should do improv that's the word i was trying to think of which clearly (laughs) means i should not do improv (laughs) um you know it doesn't mean you have to be able to come up with words it just actually means that exactly so never mind (laughs) it does (laughs) Um, well, we've got an exciting episode for you guys today, but before we jump into our topic, I want to remind you guys about our Patreon. 
Remember, we have four levels now. We've now got that um, $20 level, which gets you a free t-shirt or a tote. You direct an episode. You pick a wine. You basically just tell us what you want the episode to be all about, and we'll basically do it. But Don't we have five? Oh, I don't know. I can't count. We have five. <laughs> I was have, I was running through the numbers in my head, and I'm like, I think there's five now. I know. I saw the confused look on your face, and you're like, you can't do math, which is right. I cannot. No, um, it was a confused face of, oh my god, have we always only ever had three? <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> you just basically gaslit me. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Um, but definitely, if you haven't heard of our Patreon, go check it out. We've got a lot of additional content over there about like 35 murder minis maybe 36 or 7 um we've got our bottle talk episodes which is where we just dive really deep into wine and all the things about wine and um just that deep dive for you those of you who want a little bit more information about the wine can i say one one more time um also and it's it's (laughs) like you're dangling it in front of me and i'm like i don't have it yet I know, we have yet to open our bottles, but seriously, thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. Huge shout out. I love you guys so much. Y'all are absolutely incredible and just everything. Also, if y'all haven't, make sure to subscribe to us. We are on social media. What is that? What are we on? (laughs) We're on social media. That's it. (laughs) Um, which we'll talk about later, but subscribe to us on whatever podcast listening platform of choice you're on. So if you're on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, uh, I don't know, Pandora. I don't actually know if we're on Pandora yet. I don't know, but we're on Spotify. Let us know if you listen to us on Pandora. Let us know. We are on Spotify. We've tried Um, to submit. Um, We're also on that Fling and Fling and Facebook, the Facebook the Twitter. <laughs> all the all those things that we'll chat about later. But, the Instagram. Um, yes. Uh, okay, listen. We're on the social medias. But um, subscribe to us on whatever podcast listening platform of choice you're listening to us on right now. Um, and yeah, that's how you'll get alerted every time we have a new episode every Tuesday. Yes, and if you follow us on the Instagram, make sure you're getting alerted that we post Listen, things. <laughs> one of my friends um, already, like, took the shit out of me. Nope, that's not the right phrase. Um, <laughs> Sorry, well, what? not really a friend, it was a doctor, and it. it's a long story. No, <laughs> so um, you had a colonoscopy. Yeah, uh, oh, wait, no, I'm sorry. I mean an enema. <laughs> basically. No, um, one of my friends was making fun of me because I called it the Star Wars, and... I am also the youngest of the group, so. And that's an excuse how? Well, because I said it as, like, an old person would, and I am the youngest kind of thing, was the, the, I called it the Star Wars, and they were not happy. But, like, what makes this funny is if the the older people, they know it's Star Wars, not the Star Wars. Listen. Because it was in the 70s, dude. Just let me live. Regardless, I'm just going to jump straight into our topic, because in last week's episode, you won with the Martha Moxley case. So for this episode, I wanted to kind of, I don't know, go a little meta with the topic, because I think one of the most interesting things about the current wave of true crime uh, passion and stuff, you know, all the podcasts, the TV shows, all this, is just how many of these cases 
don't yet have answers or all the answers. And I wanted to dive in and find out what are cases where these armchair detectives, these people that are passionate about true crime and actually get on the internet and look into these things, what have they solved? And not just, you know, um, there's a ton of cases of victim identification uh, being found by armchair detectives or at least really helped by armchair detectives, but I wanted to see what cases were solved. What, I guess, chapters were able to fully close because of people on Facebook or listening to podcasts or any of the other true crime fan stuff. I mean, Brittany and I have talked a lot about how much Unsolved Mysteries was a huge part of our childhoods growing mm-hmm. up. Yeah. We loved it. And, I mean, literally that show, half of the premise is built on the fact that you at home may have answers and you may be able to solve these cases. And so, yeah, that's, boom, that's the topic. And I really like this one because I feel like there are a lot more cases that have involvement from, like, armchair detectives and internet sleuths than we like to think of. But just think about Reddit. And all the threads on Reddit and the conversations and the investigative work that a ton of people are really doing. And um, Mm -hmm. it's just, it's very interesting. So I really liked this topic you picked. Well, before we jump into the cases we have are solved by the internet cases, I, I do want the wine that you've been talking about for so long. Saying wine, 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 wine. I know. I want some. But without crying. Well, maybe you haven't been crying. What wine did you pick? <laughs> so the wine that I chose today is the Poema Metodo Tradicional Brut Cava from Penedes, Spain. And Metodo Tradicional, it translates to traditional method. And what that means is that this cava was made in the exact same way as a traditional champagne. Just not in France. You picked fancy. You went there with this wine. You would think it's fancy. This one's 10 bucks. And apparently I was looking at reviews and stuff and they were like, this is like one of the best bubblies I've ever had. Really? So I'm excited. I've never had it before. $10 is a bargain. Yeah. Especially if it's good. Yeah. Because a bottle of Cook's or Andre's, six or seven, I think. And that's, I mean, that's the basic stuff. Which, fun fact, I'm drinking this by itself. But if you're getting ones for mimosa, get the cheap stuff. Oh, yeah. You can't taste any difference. Yeah. And the same if you're making, like, a sparkling punch or something. Get the cheap stuff. You can't tell. But drinking it solo, that's when you want the good stuff. So, Poema very carefully observes the Kava's, like, very stringent regulations to make this very high-quality, small-production Kava. And, like I said, it's made with the exact same traditional methods that are used in Champagne. The grapes that are used in this are grown in, like, the limestone hills around Barcelona, and the vines that they're grown on are a minimum of 20 years old. So, it's this ain't new. No, it's not. They harvest them, and um, they do the harvest when the grapes are still green, and that gives them, like, 
the ability to have like very careful selection and ensure that only the most that only the best grapes are picked they're harvested manually so like by hand and then pressed in three different wineries that are close to the vineyards before the different uh, grapes are fermented separately the grapes are then still separate fermented in like stainless steel tanks and then after all of that they're blended and they do a second fermentation in the bottle which is really interesting to think about that like when they put it in the bottle the process isn't done i mean that's true of a lot of wine because a lot of wines that age they get better Mm -hmm. not all wine does that though as we've talked about but it's just interesting especially with sparkling wines or like a champagne where it's like that second fermentation happens inside the bottle i mean yeah and the three different types of grapes that are in this wine, it is 40% Macabeo, 40% Zarello, I think that's how you pronounce that, I am not sure, and then 20% Pariata. I haven't heard of any of those. Me neither, which is why I picked this one. And as far as tasting notes go, it is a very fresh, clean, citrus, and mineral taste with granny smith apple aromas and also these like toasted bread notes that make it just like an incredible kava interesting i want to hear what you think about this one me too because i'm like toasted bread notes and it it's not oaked because when i saw bread notes i was like whoa, 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 whoa is this oaked it's not it's aged in stainless steel and then in the bottle so, but i'm just interested to see what that could be um and this pairs really well with light tapas, oysters, and seafood. So basically anything you'd have a nice bottle of bubbly with. It also sounds like a great one that if you like it, it'd be perfect for New Year's Eve. If you're at 100%. like... 100%. Yeah, like if you're at like a New Year's Eve party and they're passed around hors d'oeuvres, or if you're like sitting on your couch eating beanie weenies because that's how you want to do it, it'd be a good kava. I... Can we talk about how underrated hors d'oeuvres are? That's like one of my favorite things of going to like a fancy party is all the little trays of fancy food and the people walking around and they're like, oh, would you like this Angus slider with a blue cheese reduction on top? And I'm like, no, I hate blue cheese, but I love you. Oh, I would be like, absolutely. I'm the person, I try every single hors d'oeuvre as it goes by. And if I really like one, sometimes I'll eat another. If there's plenty, I mean... I'd rather eat it than have it thrown away. So you know the um, the gala I talked about last episode yeah. that I had gone to? There was a point before dinner was served. They had people with hors d'oeuvres walking around. And this guy had like three what looked like scallops or something on it. And I wanted it. And he walked by me. And I like raised my hand like, oh, I'll take one. And then he just like turn- makes 90 degree turn. Starts walking away. And oh, my no. ass starts following him. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, he must not have seen me. So there's me and my friend just like quickly walking behind this man. And he gives away all of them and then turns around just like, oh, I'm sorry, I don't have any. And I think honestly, like it is innocent. He didn't see me, but I'm like, fuck. Anyone watching this situation watched him walk, watched us quickly, like, gussy up and hurry, and then watched us be very disappointed. Oh my god. really wanted a scallop. You stalked the waiter. Yes, and he (laughs) ran away from me. Maybe you had had enough scallops. 
I had not had any. <laughs> Just kidding. Oh my god, I'm so sorry. Yeah, it was the most devastating part of my night. No, I think the most devastating part of the night was when you were listening to My Heart Would Glow On and crying. Listen, yes, but it was a good <laughs> devastation. <laughs> okay, well, can uh, you please pop this bottle of champagne, except it's kava? Yes, yes, I can. And it's got, like, the traditional cork where you're unscrewing it. And, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm currently uncaging it. Uncage the wine. It wants to be let loose and free. I want to break free. Don't have the rights to that. Okay, <laughs> here we go. Also, before I open this, can we just talk about how much, like, don't be scared when you're opening a bottle of champagne. Like, literally just don't do the put your thumbs under it and push up. Just, like, I don't know, put your palm over it and grab it and twist and it's not like it's going to go... <laughs> It's true. Also, don't point it towards your face just in case, or anyone else's, or towards something that's breakable. But also, please don't scream. Exactly. Don't scream. Also, don't open it near your laptop, which I'm not doing right now. I am opening it right next to my laptop. (laughs) Just really hoping it doesn't fizz. It shouldn't, but... We'll see what happens. That was a beautiful, beautiful sound. I know. Now all of my neighbors know how I turn up on a Sunday night. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, ooh, party over at Tyler's. Let's go. They're like, Sunday at 8 p.m.? Okay. (laughs) You do you, baby. You do you. Oh. That was a weird sound where I couldn't initially tell if it was good or bad, but I think it was good. No, it's amazing. It smells like... It honestly smells like a Sauvignon Blanc and a plate of brie. Um, like it that has that little amazing. bit of like salty brininess yeah. from a brie. Yeah, and I know then exactly. That like sharp citrus granny. Oh my god! Hurry up with yours. I want to drink this. All right. Well, I will tell you about my wine now, and this is one that you know with Thanksgiving just happening, maybe you're seeing like a shit ton of Beaujolais Nouveau on the shelves still, and I'm going to tell you why that is. So for today's episode, this is the 2018 Georges Dubouf Beaujolais Nouveau from Burgundy. It's made from the Gamay grape, um, so it's from France, and Beaujolais Nouveau is it's a French tradition that celebrates the very first wine of a new vintage, and it's generally always the Gamay grape. I haven't seen it as anything else. Listeners, let me know if you have. But it's a very like fresh and fruity wine. It's bottled only a few weeks after harvest, and it's meant to be enjoyed immediately upon release. So this is a 2018. So it's last year's grapes, but they were harvested, I guess, like September 2018. And so mm-hmm. it's already, you know, the next year it's on your shelf, ready to be consumed. Um, Basically, just the time for them to process it and put it in the bottles, then you need to drink it. But it's one that it's lighter, so it goes so well with turkey. And that's why you see, generally, when people bring a red wine to Thanksgiving, it's either a Beaujolais Nouveau or a Pinot Noir. And it's because those are on the lighter end. Um, This one is in between dry and medium dry, so it's still not a sweet wine. You do 
enjoy it slightly chilled like most reds and you can have it on its own or with some food why is it that the only time we have turkey that's not like ground turkey is thanksgiving that's not fair turkey turkey works its ass off and you only appreciate it once a year or in a bad cheeseburger i mean i mean fair um turkey's fantastic but they you know plump them up all year long so there's plenty of them around thanksgiving and that's when we eat them and it's actually a really sad thing it is also so yeah get get free range if possible but also one side note the only other time of year i have turkey is at the state fair when you can get a smoked turkey leg and i am someone who's not a big big fan of like gnawing meat off of a bone like i'll do it with ribs or with like wings but i would prefer not to turkey leg is different i go caveman on that shit (laughs) it's so good and i feel like any other time of eating turkey like i am a breast man we all know that's not true it's only when you're eating turkey (laughs) only when i'm eating turkey i don't really like the dark meat i don't want to go for the legs um but when i'm at the state fair a smoked turkey leg is perfect it's so good i can smell it right now Mm. so why aren't there state fairs in winter i well because it's winter because it's winter So this one is, it's a vibrant red fruit flavor, such as strawberries and currants, um, when you taste it. And it also has an aroma that's really intense and fruity. And because of that, it's perfect with like cheese, charcuterie, and traditional holiday fare, which, like I just said, perfect for your Thanksgiving meal. And this bottle, I just want to talk a second about the label. Tyler, I'm going to hold it close to the screen so you can see this artwork. Oh, it kind of looks like it would be in like the waiting room of a spa. It is a piece of artwork titled Foolish Pleasure by Chloe Mayer. And I just, I love that. Foolish Pleasure, your wine, mm-hmm. like it totally is. Um, It's very summery and fun and pink. I love it. Me too. So I'm going to get into this and I'm going to see what this Gamay grape uh, tastes like in its, you know, first vintage for 2018. Okay, baby wine. I don't have my um, foil cutter, so I'm going to try to just like pull this cork just just straight on out. So we're going to, it worked. (laughs) Wow, that was, (laughs) that was easy. Okay, so y'all don't know this, but we just took a quick little break right there. So when I pulled out the cork, there was sediment on the bottom of it. So I want to, yeah, I want to take a second to talk about sediment. Again, this is like a new grape or like a new vintage. Maybe it has to do with that. But sediment is not bad. I know there's that one episode when Tyler drank some and it was disgusting. Actually, I think that's in a murder mini. Um, (laughs) (laughs) when I got a mouthful of like sand and dirt. Yeah. It's not something that's bad for you at all. It just, it's not a liquid. It's, it's like getting sand in your mouth. And so it's not something you want with a wine. Well, some wines have it a little bit, no big deal, but you can filter that. So I have a wine aerator that has like a little filter. So I just aerated some wine. So I've literally got, um, 
a liquid measuring cup filled with wine. I'll, it's got half the bottle. I'll get the other half in a second. Um, I'm right at the two cup mark, 16 ounces. So it's actually a little bit more than half the bottle. But if you don't have that, pour it through a coffee filter and it will serve the same purpose. I mean, that's what I would do. I don't have an aerator, so I do have coffee filters. And usually I am i never think about it because you don't. I usually don't notice until I'm at the end of the bottle. But sometimes if, um, you know, your wine was stored sideways or upside down or like whatever, or if there's just, I don't know, I guess you get lucky and get some on the cork, you'll know. (laughs) But yeah. Um, Also, don't ever put it through a water filter, okay? Uh, (laughs) No, I've done it before. Tyler's made that mistake. That's not how you want to filter it. It's just like a very simple using an aerator or a coffee filter. Don't actually don't, actually don't try to filter it do, don't do it uh-huh. um yeah if y'all want to hear about that experience uh check out bottle talk um I, I think it was in our like wine tips and tricks episode oh i think it was when you were like and the number one thing to never do is this it is literally the worst thing you can do to wine ever well as expected this beaujolais nouveau is very sweet uh, smelling like i'm not I didn't cheat. I didn't taste it. I know. My bubbles are running out, but it's fine. They're not. All right. Well, let's cheers and let's try these wines. Cheers. Oh, that's a good one. This is definitely sweet. I'm thinking they dried, dried. I mean, they lied on medium dry. Um, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I can tell by your face. I'm like having the time of my life and you're like, Okay. Well, I will say, it's not like a dessert wine by any means. It's not sweet like that. It's not sweet like a Riesling, but it's extremely, extremely fruity. Um, and, and I agree with, like, vibrant red fruits. This is a fruitier wine. Maybe for a Beaujolais Nouveau, it is a, like, drier one. But I have definitely had a Gamay um, that's a lot drier. However, it's also not a Beaujolais Nouveau. It's not brand new. Um, yeah. So again, I'm. I think if I'm understanding it correctly, you could find like this same vintage in there, what they would call their gamay, and it's the 2018. But we're not going to see it for a few more years, so it's going to like yeah. taste different. Which would make sense. Well, it either would make a lot of sense or not make much sense at all, depending on how grapes work. Because either. You know, the early grapes, they still have a lot of sugar that the plant hasn't used for energy yet. Or on the other hand, it's like other fruit where you would think it would have more sugar the, like, longer it's on the vine. So I don't, I don't know. Well, and the fermentation process for a Beaujolais Nouveau is not very long. It's only 12.5% alcohol. So it's, it's, it does have a lot of that sugar still in it. And that's why it is sweeter. And... The strawberry is, like, slapping me across the face. Oh, that's a bitch strawberry. Uh, I think mine's also, like, 12.5%, which I feel like for a bubbly is pretty up there. Which I will say, I absolutely understand why a Beaujolais Nouveau is perfect for a nice holiday meal. Generally, when you're having a holiday meal, you have a lot of food. You're eating a lot of things. You don't necessarily want to add on a really heavy red wine, unless you want to, and then by all means, you go right ahead. But if you mm-hmm. want just something to sip on while you're eating your turkey and stuffing and mashed potatoes and 
green bean casserole and all the things that are so wonderful. Um, this one definitely would do it. It would also be really good with ham, like at Christmas time. Mm. So if you still see some of the Beaujolais Nouveau on the shelves now that it's after Thanksgiving, go ahead and grab a bottle if you've never had one. Give it a try. If you don't like it, you don't like it. They're generally not very expensive. I would not spend a ton of money on a Beaujolais Nouveau. Um, again, because of all the things I've listed, it's just, it's their brand new grapes. It's the first from that vintage, but it's something I think everyone should try because I think it helps you understand and appreciate other wines when you know what a wine tastes like when it's like fresh baby wine. Mm -hmm. This is baby wine. The wine itself is a baby, not for babies. That's well, just grape juice. Um, but, That's baby wine. But yeah. Give yourself a glass. Get a glass. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I would say I would get some, give it a try, or get some now and save it for the holidays, like for um, Christmas or Hanukkah or, you know, Kwanzaa, whatever holiday you're celebrating in December. Absolutely. Or if you're just getting together in the winter, cooking, doing things. And you want to Sounds let... like a great wine for that. Yeah. And you want to just your basic, just a, a lighter wine. Beaujolais Nouveau. Do it. Boom. All right. Well, now that I've got my sediment-free wine and you have your bubbly bubbles. um... Yeah, I'm just pouring another glass. (laughs) Bubbles go quickly, don't they? They they do. And I'm also trying to pour smaller glasses like a fancy person. It's not going off off very well, though. Um, Well, while you do that, why don't you also prepare to tell me about your case? Because... Yeah. What'd you pick? Oh. Oh, I am not prepared to tell you about it, but regardless, here I go. Because my case is the death of Carolee Ashby. And the sources I used for this, I'm actually not going to name any of the titles for, I don't know, spoilers. But I used an article from Inside Hook by Steve Huff. An article from KFGO by Troy Larson. An article from Syracuse.com by Sarah Moses Buckshot, which is an awesome name. I'm just going to say. Last name Buckshot. Yes. I like it. Um, an article from WMTV by David Charns and Joe Glauber. And then an article from News.com.au, which I'm pretty sure is just News.com Australia, by Candace Sutton. You used a lot of sources there. I did. And if you're wondering how a lot of, like, upstate New York ones and an Australian one are are in the same thing, the answer is, I don't know. Australians were interested in this case, I guess. <laughs> because it takes place in the town of Fulton, New York, which, it's a town of about 12,000 people, about 25 miles north of Syracuse. And it's just a few minutes from the shore of Lake Ontario in upstate New York. So on the evening of Halloween 1968, it's cold and Carolee Sadie Ashbury is this four-year-old girl. She has an ice cream cone in one hand and her other hand, her 15-year-old sister Darlene is like holding it and they're walking down the sidewalk. They were on their way home from the drugstore. They had just gotten candles for Darlene's birthday cake, because Halloween was also Darlene's birthday. And they're holding each other's hand, crossing a pretty busy street. It's just past sunset, so 
it's, you know, it's not dark out. And a car speeds through the intersection, and Carolee, who is just a step behind her older sister, was struck by the car and, like, ripped out of Darlene's hand. Oh my god. Carolee was knocked out of her cowboy boots that she was wearing, her ice cream cone goes flying, and she is thrown 133 feet down the street. And according to um, a story that was published in the newspaper, the car stopped briefly, but quickly just drove away without helping. This is like every parent's worst nightmare on Halloween night. One of yeah. one of them. I think there are a lot of nightmares parents can think of on Halloween night. Um, this being well, hit by a car is... is totally one of them. Yeah, and it's one of those that... I mean, they'd done everything right as far as safety. Her 15-year-old sister was with her. They're walking. I think they were going to do... Like, they were getting candles for Darlene's birthday cake, and I think the plan was they would do her birthday stuff, and then they'd all go trick-or-treat with Carolee. But Carolee was hit by the car, and she died. The story that ran in the newspapers the next day just said, Car Kills Child. And it just said that Carol Ashby, who was the four-year-old daughter of George Ashby of Fulton, was killed on Thursday when she was struck by a car on Route 57. That was it. That was her story. Oh my god, it didn't even mention it was a hit and run? No. And An investigation did follow, and a few of the residents in the area were interviewed, but no one was arrested and the car just wasn't found. And so time started to move on, weeks, months, years, and the police just did not have any good news for Carolee's family. Her father would later say, every Halloween, it's so hard to say happy birthday to Darlene, because 99 times out of 100, she starts crying. She was literally getting birthday candles for herself. Yeah. And... So the case went cold. There weren't really any leads. There was nothing. But investigators didn't forget about it, which to me is really surprising. I feel like in a lot of these cases, when cases go cold, oftentimes investigators can forget. But as we both remember talking to Jackie um, back earlier, we were talking about Cold Valley and the Lewiston-Clarkston murders that were, what, 40 years ago? that sometimes investigators do not quit. They refuse to stop looking. Yeah. And that is something, again, that's so amazing. I feel like we always bring this up, but it's such a a good point to make, is a lot of the times they're doing this in their own time because it's a cold case. They've got hot and warm cases that they're looking at throughout the day, and the cold cases are for after hours when they're done with work. And you know as well as I do, they're never actually done with work because they just bring it home slash... They're never done with work. Work is a 24-7 thing. Absolutely. So the investigators in this case, a lot of them did not forget about this and did not stop. And over the years, there were a lot of attempts made to make, to take another look at it. But every time they would come up empty handed. So flash forward to 2012 and retired Fulton Lieutenant Russ Johnson he was one of the investigators who'd previously worked on it, and he still thought about her every day. And the person who had just carelessly killed her 
and left her family with no justice, no resolution. And, you know, in the years since the case, obviously social media had become a thing, and he thought that maybe this could be another avenue they could try to find answers. So he made a post on a Facebook page, and it was one of those, like, town Facebook pages with, like, you know, memories of whatever, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just one where people who'd lived there and moved away or whatever would, like, talk about, you know, the history. And, you know, that's probably where you'd see, like, all right, graduating class of 1987. We're having our, you know, 30-year reunion at the Holiday Inn or whatever. Right. You know, different, just different things like that. And so he made a post seeing if anyone had any information or remembered anything, and it worked. People remembered? People remembered, and one person in particular knew something or remembered something that was the final key. It was, it was what they needed. Well, and this is huge because, again, like you said, the article that ran in the paper was just like a sentence of fact. Of like, oh, yeah. this happened. Investigators are looking into it. And one thing I do want to note about my case, while it's not really, you know, technically being solved by armchair detectives, because Lieutenant Johnson used to work on the case, used to be an investigator. He is retired at this point, so it's more of a passion project, and it was also solved online. And when I found this case, I really wanted to do it, and no one's going to stop me from doing what I want to do. So, there we go. No, well, and it's fair, and it's still the way that social media influences investigations now. Yeah. It's a huge part of how we transmit information, how we communicate, and so obviously it's involved. I mean, we have talked briefly about the horrors that are Facebook Live and the ways some people choose to use it. And so, yeah. It is why I don't go on Facebook Live anymore. I used to. Like, I was that kid who, when I was like 22, I'm at the club. I'm going to go on Facebook Live so everyone can see how much fun I'm having. You did used to do that. And now, I did that a lot. I also went to the club a lot. But I, first off, I kind of stopped because then I would be like, your father is currently watching your story. <laughs> I'm like, first off, it's 4 a.m. for wherever you are. That's, you should be in bed. And then second off, I'd be like, yeah. But the main thing That's... that stopped me is I always had this image in my head of like, I don't know. I I always have worst case scenario disaster shit going on in my mind. But I'm like, what if there's a bombing at the club? And this is what is seen. Like, and that's how family's like, oh, let's walk. And then sees that. I'm terrified. Or, like, a shooter comes into the club. I mean, because there's far too many times that's the case. Especially, um... Because I was doing this right around... When Pulse like, happened? When the, when the Yeah, when the Pulse shooting happened and stuff. And I was like, hmm. I know there were people who were probably on Facebook Live there that that's how their family realized they were in danger. And I don't know, I was just like, uh, yeah, maybe we're good. I mean, it's a legit reason, but it's also a horrifying reason. I get it, but also, yeah, I have a lot of feelings as someone who is in your family and who would always watch your lives. 
how traumatic that would be. So, mm-hmm. um, fair. Also, I feel like Facebook Live is kind of just going down. If you're not teaching, like, a, a class or a how-to tutorial, I don't really think people use it as much anymore. Yeah. I don't know. Prove me wrong. Yeah. Prove me or wrong, if you're, though. like, I feel like if you're a famous YouTuber and you're like, hey, guys, just want to let y'all know my new video goes live in 15 minutes. Maybe we should start doing fa- Blood and Wine Facebook Lives. Maybe we should. Maybe we're missing the mark. I know. Damn. But, yeah. So, I don't. I don't do Facebook Live anymore. It also just, there's so much stuff you could see, and with it being live, you, I mean, it's already posted. I don't know. I'm just like, also think of all the things that you really don't want your family on social media to hear. It's live. I mean, yeah, you can delete it after, but if they're already watching, they're already watching. It's true. I mean, how many Facebook Lives do you think someone's been like, hey, I'm doing live, and in the back, I'm like, Baby, come back to bed. Oh, shit, my grandma was watching. <laughs> I don't know. I was thinking Just of, even, like... like, lighter things like that. I know, I was thinking of, like, being in the club and someone being like, Go suck his dick! <laughs> in the background. I don't know. <laughs> Kid, he's cute! Or even, like, the, oh, you're, you know, at your house and your partner, who doesn't realize you're on Facebook Live, <laughs> walks behind you naked. <laughs> And then now your family knows how big your boyfriend's dick is. I'm just saying, maybe don't Facebook Live things. It's so dangerous. And yeah, the dangers are not always what you're doing, but it's what's happening in the background. Which, we, we <laughs> took your horror dangers to some funny ones. like <laughs> We did, but at its core, it's because of the horror dangers. <laughs> I feel like things like that, I'm going to take it real dark and then swing back into the case. Um, but I feel like any time with dangers like that, like with mass shooters, things like that, that you have to consciously change your routine or what you enjoy or things you do, I feel like that is really when it hits home. Like, yes. I don't like, I live in Austin and I don't like going to live music shows for like multiple reasons. But one of the big ones being is I don't feel safe in crowds like that and stuff anymore i know i went and saw the joker movie on opening weekend you know that i went with our sister and our mm-hmm. mom and i didn't go on opening night because i just i just wasn't sure and yeah i looked at the news before we went to see if anything really happened and a couple incidents did but there wasn't anything huge and so we went but it's just like I don't know. I hate that we had to do that, the check. Yeah. And as much as it's one of those things where, you know, you can fall victim to a mass casualty event like that, going school shopping, you know, back to school shopping, or it doesn't have to be anything that you would ever think of as dangerous, but even still those times in my head when I like recognize the, oh, I don't know about this. I'm like, you know, I'm good. I don't want to go. So yeah. Anyways, back to my case. So he posts on Facebook and this woman contacts him. And she is anonymous, but she, I assume not anonymous to him, but like to all the new stuff is anonymous. Um, She lived in Florida and she'd been raised in Fulton and she realized when she saw the post looking for any information on Carolee's death and, I guess, manslaughter? I don't 
I don't know if you would you call it a murder or just her death. I don't know. Does at this point well does the act of driving away make it murder? I mean, I think it would make it because I, I, to me, I think it would make it manslaughter, but I think it could definitely be argued depending on your lawyer as like second degree murder. Yeah, I think it could because I think if you hit someone and they die, just and you stay, you can get convicted of manslaughter. But you have a really good point about a lot of it does depend on your lawyer. Yeah. I mean, even if it's like, maybe it's negligent homicide. Is that a thing? Did I make that up? No. I don't think I did. I don't think you made that up. But I feel like, I mean, depending on your lawyer, you might even get the below manslaughter. Who even knows? It all depends on lawyer, situation, all the things. And every case does. Like, that's a very universal statement that we've never really talked about, about how much lawyers play into how a trial goes in the sentencing and it's it's huge and we don't we don't really have time for that tangent but it's something we should put a pin in and definitely dive into I mean, at some point i mean yeah it definitely your lawyer can 100 percent change the course of your entire everything if, i'm just if oj's lawyer had been a um just a someone even put away but because his lawyers were able to be that good and uh, know, like, what heartstrings to play on and what to do. And I obviously I can't say that for sure, but... He did it. I'm just saying, like, there's so many cases. Yeah. Allegedly, because I don't know if legally we could... Defamation and all that fun stuff. But yeah, allegedly, he did it. <laughs> yep, pretty much. Just like, you know, the book... If I did it. Mm-hmm. Best thing and, ever. I mean, great job, Goldman family. Oh, absolutely. But after Lieutenant Johnson made this Facebook post, this woman in Florida sees it and she's like, holy shit. I actually think I know what the answer might be to this. So she contacted authorities and told them everything she knew. So back in 1968, she had an acquaintance by the name of Douglas Parkhurst. I just realized this happened in the 60s and we're now in 2012, right? Yeah. This is so, she's so like old. old. Like, she's known this information for a very long time. But I think a lot of it is because, like you said, you know, the newspaper post had been, a girl was killed. And with what she knew... I could see how it's, at the time, it doesn't mean anything. And then this, you're like, holy shit. Right. She knew something, but she didn't know she knew something that meant anything that mattered. Yeah. Because she had this friend back in 68, Douglas Parkhurst. And just after the death of Carolee Ashby, a member of Douglas's family asked this woman, if she could vouch for him and said, you know, if anyone comes around asking, just say that Halloween night you were with him. And she was like, um, okay. Like they told her and she's like, I don't really know why they're asking me this. Um, and what I'm really providing an alibi for, but I'm not going to do it. She's like, whatever shit he got himself into, he was not with me. And if anyone asks, I'm going to tell them that. He's not getting an alibi from me. What a smart woman. Because you know how easy it would be to just be like, okay, sure. I mean, whatever. I'll say I was with Becky. What was she doing? Or what was he doing with his girlfriend? Yeah. I said Becky because I was thinking like me. Um, But it's like, yeah, okay, fine. He just wanted 
time with his significant other. Uh, okay. You know, yeah. like, there are so many, like, harmless things. You know, maybe, or even, like, harmful, but not as bad as killing a child. Like, oh, he was cheating on Rebecca, or, you know, something like that. And, oh, okay, sure. But she she was like, no, I'm not going to provide him any alibi. But in the end, it really wouldn't matter because no one asked her. No one ever came around saying if she knew anything about where he was that night. And it wasn't until this moment where she made... It's like the light bulb. Like, click! Yeah. She sees this post asking if, you know, anything suspicious. I don't know exactly what the post said. Right. But obviously it was vague enough for her to think that this could be a part of it. Yep. Um, So she sees that and she's like, Halloween 1968. Well, I have this. And so she called the police up there. And when she told them, it became this, like, the crack in everything that they needed to, like, get into the meat. Oh, my God. There's a lot of mixed metaphors going around, but the crack in the meat. It was the crack in the pot pie to get to the meat. Pot pie is so good. Which is the killer. Pot pie is not that great. Have you ever had homemade pot pie? I think you made it for me once, and I was not a fan. Wow, that really just hurt a lot, because I love to cook, and you know that. It's fine. (laughs) I think I'm a great cook. Tyler has wrong taste buds. Yeah, but I also don't like things like chicken and dumplings. Oh my god, you really do have broken taste buds. It's the same profile. I guess I do. What if I just every single day when I wake (laughs) up, I take one of those Miracle Berry taste pill things, and I'm like, why do I hate normal things? Have you ever seen those? Yeah. Oh my god. It's where basically you eat like, I don't know, a bean and it tastes like a raspberry. (laughs) Right? I mean, (laughs) first off, when have you ever eaten a bean? This is not Jack and the Beanstalk (laughs) shit going on. You eat more than one bean. Second off, they make like sour things taste super sweet and sweet things taste like bitter or sour or something. Anyways, like, you bite into a lemon, and it's, like, cloyingly, disgustingly sweet. Or a spoonful of ketchup tastes like fucking icing. A bell pepper is, like, a fresh apple. Taco Bell's fucking weird. Let me tell you that. I had them at a party once. We were were all doing taste-tripping pills at a party in college, because we were those kids. Um... (laughs) And then we had, like, a Taco Bell taco pack. And it was fucking gross. (laughs) That's so weird. And, yes, maybe that's why you don't like my chicken pot pie. So rude. I'm sure your chicken pot pie is delicious to someone that likes chicken pot pie. But I, I think my issue with it is I think gravy and chicken is a real gross combo. Unless it's specifically the gravy that daddy makes when he does like fried chicken and it's that kind of brownish gravy it's really fucking good um okay well also i'm pretty sure that our stepmom is the one that actually makes that gravy so that meal is one she's done for years okay well shout out to you it's amazing whoever makes it it's incredible and that's the only time i like chicken with gravy you know what um you're wrong 
you're wrong. And I like how you tried to save yourself, but I'm still real hurt that you've oh, no. you've held this in for years. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, maybe you've never made me, made me a pot pie, because I feel like it's a buried memory. It might have been you made me, like, a Stouffer's chicken pot pie as a child, and I'm like, this is fucking gross, Brittany. <laughs> you know, as, like, a six-year-old would say. It's fine. It, at least it's not one of those things where, like, you tried it and told me you loved it because you didn't want to hurt my feelings, and I just automatically think it's, like, your favorite thing, so I make it all the time. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I have people that I have that relationship with, and I'm like, god damn it. <laughs> I've, I've made that mistake of being like, oh my god, this is amazing. Well, they love it, I make it every time they come here, and I'm like, and also, we had, um, one of the cafes at work has been doing pot pies on occasion, like chicken pot pies, and it's just a lot. Okay, Tyler, I get it. You don't like chicken pot pies, especially mine, so I'm never making it for you again. Listen, I'm basically saying read between the lines, never cook for me. And I'm not. You're a great cook. Also, I was going to say, that is a bold-faced lie, because we cook together all the time. It's true, and I usually make you cook i'm like i'll do the prep work if you want to cook because you're better at it than i am thank you the only thing i am confidently good at now is like doing stuff on the grill that i can do and i can do real well yeah you can and then i can do other things if it's italian food i have that down but yeah, no, basically anything else, it's Brittany's place to be. Anyway, this is not a food podcast. It's a true crime podcast. The opposite I'm also of food. Hungry. Did you not eat dinner? I had a can of soup. Oh my god, so you were full for like three minutes. <laughs> yes. It's like... But listen, it... Georgia went from Food Network to My Favorite Murder, and it worked out pretty damn well for her, so they're not unrelated. Okay, um, also, Willow is here to say hello. Throughout this entire episode, she's been sitting on my lap. Um, she just really wants to be a part of this, and she wants to say hi to you. Oh, hi, Willow. So nice to see you. But, anyways, she's very precious. Murder. Let's talk about crime. So, this woman in Florida, who, again, is remaining anonymous, so it's not like I didn't know her name. She didn't want us to know her name. She tells police what she knows about this guy, Douglas Parkhurst, trying to get her to be his alibi. And she's like, fuck off. Police realized when she told them this that they knew who this guy was. And they'd actually interviewed him back in 1968. No way. Yeah. He owned a 1962 Buick, like the one that was seen leaving the crime scene, And so they interviewed him, but it didn't go anywhere. So after that and this piece of evidence, they immediately started piecing everything together and knew they needed to talk to him again. So back in 1968, in his interview, Parker's told police that he'd been in a car accident on Halloween night. You know, he said, I ran into a guardrail, but it actually wasn't even in Fulton. It was in the town over Volney. And... While the damage to his car did not match hitting a guardrail, he wasn't questioned again. And not long after that, his Buick disappeared, 
and he was enlisted and deployed to Vietnam, where he served two tours of duty. So, basically... Untouchable. He, he, yeah, he went under their radar. Yeah. So now in 2012 and 2013, they had this tip, and they were able to interview him several more times. And slowly the truth began to come out. So yes, he had been driving his Buick in Fulton that night. He and his brother had been drinking. He was driving. He was drunk. His brother's passed out in the back seat. He gives police a written statement that he heard a thud. And he, he thought he hit an animal or something. He wrote, I don't know where I hit that thing. I don't remember when I hit that thing, but... I know I told police I'd gotten into an accident about 6.45 that night. And that thing he wrote out hitting, that's Carolee Ashby, who's a four-year-old girl. How do you not know when you hit a person? I mean, how drunk was he? I mean, I obviously... He had to be blitzed. Yeah, but even still, I cannot imagine not knowing you hit a person. Like, And maybe it's just because... I guess I've never been drunk enough and gone through an event like that that would be like, oh, you fucking remember. Like, the times, you know, in, like, college that I blacked out have been like, I don't remember going from the ground floor to my dorm room or whatever. So it's not it's not anything that, like, would stick out regardless. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know. Which I will say, just as a side note, blacking out is really scary. Like, when you really think about the position you're putting yourself in to have no knowledge of what's happening. And, like, uh, I don't know. I I get really uncomfortable having too much to drink outside of home. Like, I'm not saying I'm innocent. I've blacked out. I've frowned out. It's, that's... I'm not that innocent. (laughs) Um... But when you really sit back and think about it, like, there have been a couple times where I'll sit back and I'm like, oh my god, I'm really, like, it's like being scared of something that could have happened in the past, if that makes sense. I mean, yeah. Just like, oh my god, I can't believe I put myself in that situation, who knows what could have happened. So it's like, don't ever, I don't know, if you're gonna drink outside of the house, don't do it alone, like, don't leave a friend who's been drinking, you just... You never know what can happen. And obviously, considering we talk about all the things that we do on this podcast, like, obviously, I think the worst, but that stuff happens for real. Like, there's a reason we have an unending list of content for this podcast, as horrifying as that reality is. It is our reality. So I'm just saying, if you're going to drink a lot, you do you. Be safe, though. Don't drink too much. Like, because alcohol poisoning is thing i mean absolutely and the thing is in this case what makes me so mad is you know he's he's calling carolee like a thing he's like i don't remember hitting that thing yeah and he claimed he's like i he didn't see what he hit he didn't remember stopping after the accident remember the car stopped and like long enough to recognize what just happened and then drive away yeah and yeah, maybe some of that's true, but I don't know. I just, I cannot fully accept that he had no idea. that Or that he was even that drunk to remember nothing. I know. I have a hard time with that as well. 
Which, and side note, um, obviously this is a drinking podcast, like we're sitting here drinking wine, but I mean, yeah. we're doing it safely. We're both at home. Obviously, I mean, I'm not doing anything after this and we're not going crazy. So yeah, I, it just, it's like there are, there are safe ways to drink. It's why we do. It's an enjoyable thing. Um, we like mm-hmm. learning about wine, but there are unsafe ways to drink as well. And so you I mean, yeah. you have to know the distinction between the two. And clearly, he is doing the, the very unsafe way of drinking. Yeah. I mean, y'all will never hear a blood and wine episode that was recorded while on the highway. Like, that's not happening. Or even, like, a blood and wine episode where we end up being like, alright guys, we're gonna go to this party and not lift. We also don't live in the same place. So... But I'm just saying. Yeah. Yeah. Drinking is totally fine as long as you're responsible about it. And just don't be a dumbass. Don't be a dumbass. Basically. But back to the case. So, you know, he's saying he blacked out and stuff. I absolutely don't believe him. And a big part of that is because, to me, there's nothing that, like, shows that he actually had no idea what happened. I.e., Remember, he got rid of his car. He did. And the fact that I'm like, if you knew to get rid of it, then no. And when the police asked him, his police did eventually find his car after his confession. So literally in 2012, he'd abandoned it on a family member's property. And he said he couldn't remember how it got there. But so at this point, his confession was complete He told police he was 99.9% sure that he had killed her. And after that, it wasn't long before he picked up his life and moved to Maine. Wait, 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 wait. He just moved to Maine? Why Why is he not in jail? Well, he wasn't charged with anything. Why? He admitted it. He admitted he's 99.9% I killed her. He wasn't charged with anything because the statute of limitations had long expired and there could be no charges brought against him. And police knew that going in. They just wanted to do this to get answers for the family. Why is statute of limitations a thing? I mean... For murder? Why should there ever be a statute of limitations for anything? Murder, rape, whatever. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think in this case, it must have been, they could, because the statute of limitations for murder, I think in places that have it is like 72 years. I think they must have only been able to charge him with like manslaughter. And so, I don't know. It's been 45 years since she was killed. So, I don't know. I don't know why that's still a thing. I will never understand statute of limitations. I just wholeheartedly disagree with, oh, this much time has passed, so you're no longer guilty for this thing that you did. No, especially in crimes that have a clear victim. Yeah. Or violent crimes. Yeah. Like, you know, if you shoplift when you're 12 or whatever, you know, you shoplift when you're 20 and, I don't know, the store manager finds footage of that 40 years later. Should you be charged with that? I mean, yeah, probably not, but... I agree. I think with violent I mean, crimes. But I think in... Yeah, I think in violent crimes and stuff, why? 
because I promise you, if you rape someone, that trauma is still there for them 50 years later. Exactly. That's not left to them. No. That doesn't go away. No. But the statute of limitations had passed for this. He wasn't charged. And the police, their goal was just to get justice for her family and to find answers. And they did. Which is great. But he never even apologized to her family for killing their daughter. Well, he called her a thing. So he, we clearly know he had no soul. Yeah. And this is not where the story ends, though. Five years later, he was involved in another hit and run. In 2018, at Goodall Park in Stanford, Maine, a little league game is going on when this maroon sedan approaches a gate, like, to the field, and the driver's yelling, like, open the gates! And then just a moment later, the car smashes through the gate and starts driving around the baseball field while a little league game's going on. So there are, like, baseball kids just running away, running out of the way from this car. After racing past, like, home plate, the driver aims for another gate on the other side of the field, And just starts flooring it. And in between the car and this gate is a man walking with a group of kids. And he pushes them out of the path of the oncoming car. And, you know, tries to close the gate. So they're not going to get hit. But he was hit and he was killed. And that man was Douglas Parkhurst. Oh, he was the one saving the people. Yeah. He was at the game. His grandson was playing ball that day, and he was killed in a hit and run. You know, this is a weird level of karma. I I don't know. I'm not trying to be, like, sassy about it, but I do think it's a level of karma. Um, Yeah. But who... Who is this person that was mowing down a Little League field? Like, that's beyond... uh, Like... No, that's unimaginable, that that level yeah. of hatred. So that person was a woman by the name of Carol Shero. She was taken into custody later that day. And after this, the newspaper and the news in Maine rep- reported that she'd had a history of drunk driving offenses. But there really wasn't any motive for what she'd done. And as for Parkhurst, his backstory and stuff wasn't known. You know, he'd moved out of small town in New York, wasn't charged with anything. So, at first, he's seen as this local hero who saved these kids, pushed them out of the way, and then his past starts coming out. And people start to learn about what he did. Oh my god. And after his death, Darlene Ashby McCann, who was the older sister, who was held holding Carolee's hand in 1968 when she was killed, Um, She was asked about how she felt. She said, I hate to think that I'm relieved that someone has passed away, but that's what I feel. Yeah. Relief. She said that the circumstances surrounding his death were ironic, and they were riddled with a lot of coincidences. I mean, first off, the big one being he died in the same way that her sister did. Yeah. Struck by a drunk hit-and-run driver. But beyond that, the driver of the car that hit him was named Carol. Her sister's name was Carol Lee. 
And also, he was 68 when he died, and her sister died in 1968. This is almost like literature. The way yeah. the way these things are t- the, like know, tying the up parallel. Yeah, yeah. She did say that there was one big difference between the crash that killed her little sister and this one. She said that his family will have it a lot easier because they don't have to sit and wonder what happened. Well, and the fact that he got to have a life. Yeah, and, and she did. Carolee was, yeah, Carolee was four when she was killed. He was 68. He had to have everything. Yeah. She didn't. And that is the case, the death of Carolee Ashby. I wonder how much law enforcement is using Facebook as a tool. Oh, I would assume it'd have to be like all the time. I mean, yeah, that totally makes sense. I know that there are like victim advocate groups and like the web sleuths Mm -hmm. are using it. And you've got to believe that law enforcement also has a hand in it because it's such a resource. Oh, absolutely. Well, tell me about your case. What case did you bring that was solved by armchair detectives? Okay. Mine is about the murder of Lynn June. So the sources I used, an article from Rolling Stone, Animal Instinct, How Cat-Loving Sleuths Found an Accused Killer, Sadist, by Bill Jensen, cat-loving sleuths. I mean, yes. Me. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Best article title ever. An article on Luca Magnada from Murderpedia. And then an article by Mark Oliver on All That's Interesting. So this guy, Luca Magnada, was born Eric Newman in Ontario in 1982. He chose this new name for himself as a sort of reinvention. He wanted to purge all these bad memories of some really messed up stuff that happened to him when he was a kid. Um, So we're not entirely sure what made him want to change his name, but maybe it was that he was abandoned by his parents when he was 10 years old and they left him to live with this very brutal and domineering grandmother that he had. Or maybe it was from when he was a teenager. You know, he was very young, he was bisexual, and he lived in a small town in Ontario, Canada, and it did not make being bisexual easy. He also, though, had mental illness. Um, He inherited paranoid schizophrenia from his father, and he started hearing voices when he was 18 years old. So regardless of what the exact reason was or combination of reasons, he wanted to completely erase Eric Newman. And so he legally changed his name in August 2006 to Luca Magnata. That's just an interesting name. I mean, I always think it's interesting people changing their names in general because I, I mean, I wouldn't change my name. I know. I love my but, name. Um, lots of people have lots of reasons and they're all valid. But I think it's interesting when someone is like, I'm going to change my name to Galaxy Vendetta Delo Starbucks. And I'm like, okay. Why? You know what? Honestly, it's your name. You do whatever the fuck you want. I'm I have no place to have any decisions about your own fucking life, but that's interesting. Especially when there are people who do crimes, and I'm like, you would think you would want to change your name to like Carl Johansson. Or Carl Jones. Like even go easier. Yeah. I mean, you just be basic. Don't go so basic. Don't be like, my new ja- name is John Doe, because 
people would recognize that. But no one is going to recognize a Matt Smith or a Martha Jones or a Rose Tyler. <laughs> just, you know, some random names I just thought of <laughs> that are totally of my own creation. Oh my gosh. For those of y'all who don't know this and aren't big nerds like us, that was a Doctor Who reference. Um, yes. Okay, so in 2003, Luca began to appear in gay porno videos and he would occasionally work as a stripper and a male escort. Can I, like, find those videos online? You don't want to, and you're going to understand why in a little bit. Okay. Okay. Because at this point, I have no idea what he's done, and I probably should not have asked that, but that was my first thought. Also, like, honey, you're gay in the 80s. Everyone did porn and was an escort. And I, you're not special. He was born in 82, so th- we're talking about 2003. Oh, it's the 90s. It's, it's, oh, 2003. It's 2003. Good lord. Well, listen. Are you? Are you? <laughs> <laughs> am I am I have an escort? No, I, no are you I, listening? <laughs> oh, uh, <laughs> vaguely. Um, he also appeared as a pinup model in a 2005 issue of Toronto's Fab Magazine using the pseudonym Jimmy. So he would, he was all about the different names. Well, I mean that makes sense. I mean I feel like in any kind of porn or like pinup stuff, like a pseudonym. Absolutely, you're not going to be like, this is my birth name, look up my high school yearbook photos. No, totally, I agree. But he also rebuilt his entire face through plastic surgery. So he was really just completely erasing Eric Newman. Every single thing about him. I'm just imagining that one, um, like, plastic surgeon doctor from Kimmy Schmidt. It's fine, just continue. I don't remember that. I watched, like, the first two seasons. I think he was in the second season. I, I don't I know. Forget. He was scary. I don't know. I forget. It was, it was basically someone, if you imagined having balloons under their skin. Ew. Their face. <laughs> oh, God. It was a lot. Uh, anyway. <laughs> um. So in 2007, rumors started to emerge that Luca was in a relationship with this woman named Carla Homolka who was a very high-profile Canadian murderer who was convicted of helping her husband... Paul Bernardo killed two teenagers along with Wait. along with raping and murdering her own sister, Tammy, in the nineties. Wait, is are they the Ken and Barbie killers? Uh-huh. uh-huh. So a rumor starts going around that Luca's dating Carla. Oh my god. It turns out Luca made it up. Why would you make that up? Attention. Also, I feel like that's really easy to like disprove. It went around for a really long time. He made it up. He wanted attention. He was one of those people that would create various social media profiles. And he would be in, like, all these different discussion forums. Um, He would plant false or unverified claims about himself. Like, he just... He was all over the place. And he... He's a catfish. Basically. And he would repeatedly, like, be approached about this, like, oh, you made this fake shit. And he's like, no, that's a hoax. Or, like, no, there's a cyber stalker, like, against me. Is he that, like, well-known or famous? I mean, I guess he's been in a couple pornos, but, like, let's be real, it's Toronto. It's not that hard to get into porn. I mean, is he that well-known that anyone would care to make a hoax about him? He wants to be. Oh. He wants to be well, famous. Just, That's one of his goals which, in life. Which that that would make sense. I mean, because 
I can tell you right now, no one's going to make a hoax about me. I wasn't secretly there on the moon landing. Or was I? <laughs> I'm not important enough, or like, or at least well-known enough for people to, that that would ever be any kind of conclusion I could come up with anything, or anything that anyone else would believe. Well, but you also have to remember, he's a paranoid schizophrenic. I don't know, he, he does these types of things. He wants this type of attention, and he's well, creating yeah. all of these different versions of himself. As it turns out, Lucas set up about 70 Facebook pages and 20 websites under different names. So that's the thing. Like, he's, I don't know, he has Luca wants to be famous, but he's creating all this shit under different names. So it's not like it's the same name. Um, So that's Luca. Lin June was an international student and he an undergraduate in the engineering and computer science facility at Concordia University. He worked part-time as a convenience store clerk, and he had been studying in Montreal since July 2011. He moved into a Griffintown area apartment with a roommate on May 1st, and Lynn was really just looking for a friend. He was 33 years old, and he hadn't been in Montreal yet for even one year, by the time it was spring of 2012. And this is when Luca Magnata, who was 29 years old, contacted Lynn and Lynn was just happy to have a friend. So Luca and Lynn met up on the night of May 24th, 2012, after Lynn responded to a Craigslist ad that Luca had posted in hopes of finding someone interested in sex and bondage. So Luca's wanting to have that type of night. Or so so he says. So that night at about 9 p.m., Lin Jun sent one final text message to a friend. That was the last time he was ever heard from. His boss started to get suspicious when he didn't show up for his shift the next day. And then three of his friends went to his apartment on May 27th. So three days after he, they hadn't heard from him. They didn't find him. The day before my birthday. The day before your birthday. And they didn't find him. And so he was finally reported missing on May 29th. The next time anyone saw Lynn was in an 11 minute video uploaded to bestgore.com on May 25th, and it was titled One Ludentic, One Ice Pick. Um, excuse me? So the video, it reveals Lynn June. He'd been stripped down naked and tied to a bed frame, and In this room that he's in, there's a poster of the movie Casablanca over his head, and his head is actually shrouded with a white cloth. And in the background, there's music from the band New Order blaring in the speakers. And then you see a hooded figure start hacking him apart with an ice pick and a kitchen knife. Oh! Oh my god! Like... On the video. Fucking live stream or... Just on, oh my god. And then the video goes on to show this hooded figure sexually violating and dismembering the body. Oh no. Oh fuck no. Later, police um, got their hands on an extended version of this video, and this man allegedly even started eating parts of the body. What the fuck? Apparently, materials had been released promoting the video online at least. 10 days before this murder took place. Yeah, so this is by far one of the most horrific things I could ever imagine being posted online, but 
this is why so, th- this stuff is just like creepy. Yeah. Um. So on May 26th, an attorney from Montana attempted to report the video to the Toronto police and the FBI, but the officials dismissed the report. Um. By the way, obviously, I did not try to look something like this up because no fucking way. Uh, don't fucking. No, I d- absolutely. I not. don't even know if it exists online. I would think it does not. I think it was taken down and whatnot. But literally, not something anyone should ever have to see. No. So police did later confirm that this video was authentic and they identified the victim as an Asian male. And then they so happened to realize it was the same, had to, had to have been the same person whose body parts had been sent to Ottawa. So at 11 a.m. on May 29th, a package containing a left foot was delivered to the national headquarters of the Conservative Party of Canada. The package was stained with blood and had a foul smell and had a foul smell and was marked with a red heart symbol. Another package containing a left hand was intercepted in a Canada Post processing facility and it was addressed to the Liberal Party. And then, outside of an apartment building in the Snowden area of Montreal, there was a suitcase that had been in the alley for a few days. The building's janitor had noticed this suitcase multiple times when he was outside, but then there started to be this, like, really horrid stench that started to come from this suitcase. Up until May 29th, the janitor just ignored it because, I mean, someone just threw their trash outside, whatever. Yeah. But the smell from inside was getting worse and worse. And obviously, you've already assumed what's about to happen. Nothing could prepare him for what happened when he opened that suitcase. Inside, he found a man's severed torso. All of the limbs had been torn off. Head, arms, legs. Holy shit. So at this point in time, Luca Magnata was already being investigated for horrific acts of violence for about a year before he killed Lin June, which obviously I'm sure as you've picked up, yeah, Luca did this. That That's the whole... I mean, yeah. We know that's what happened. The police don't yet. Yeah. There had been a group of online sleuths. They'd been working together on Facebook to hunt down Magnata because he uploaded a video of himself killing animals. So on the evening of December 21st, 2010, this man named Ryan Boyle had been surfing the web at home in Maryland. He was an army vet who had made a civilian transition into working on aviation electronics for the Navy and so he's just at home one night toggling between YouTube and 4chan. And he noticed someone had uploaded a video titled One Boy, One Kittens. And in the video, this person suffocates two tabby kittens. What the fuck? Uh, exactly. So Ryan sees this video and he's this big animal guy. And it just, it hit him in a really personal place. And he wanted to see this person pay for what they had done on this video. He's literally just surfing, like, 4chan and looking at funny stuff, and he he came across this video. So he was horrified. I hate this. So he he started to read the comments on the video, and someone suggested that something ought to be done. And Brian was like, yeah, I think that's a great idea. So he he goes to Facebook, and he starts a group called Save Tekite. So, like, the, but T-E-H. Save Tekite. Yeah. 
um, Boyle then clicked back to 4chan to, like, leave a comment, let the people know about his Facebook group, like, ferry them over. And this is when he noticed that someone else had had the same idea he had, and that person had 50 people, he only had 20. So he contacts this other admin who happened to be a 14-year-old named um, Dylan, at least that, that was their internet name. Um, and he was like, dude, let's join forces. Like, let's put our groups together. And so Boyle, under his alias, Save Kitte, he became the admin of a Facebook group titled Find the Vacuum Kitten Killer for Great Justice. On the very same day that Boyle found this video and started the group, there was a woman on the West Coast. So I said uh, Boyle was in Maryland. Someone on the West yeah. Coast using the internet as the alias Bowdy Movin, she saw the video in her Facebook feed and found her way to the group. She'd been following an animal mutilation case on 4chan, and she became really intrigued at how users were able to identify a Texas girl who was responsible for posting photos featuring the decapitation of a dog. Oh my fucking... I... The internet is horrible, I know it? it... I mean, it's awful. It's in some ways the best thing ever created and some things the worst and i know the reaction that i'm having right now to animals getting murdered is very visceral and very horrified but i just i don't know there's something about animals that literally all they do is trust you that's that's literally it yeah you know your pets trust you you know when when people abuse their pets their animals are as you know it's the oh what did i do wrong for this kind of thing and it's just fucking horrible and to put it online to show it off as entertainment mm-hmm. i know i hate your fucking case all of all I'm of it's done. so messed up it's so messed up so moving she found it really fascinating how the people who were able to find this texas girl they used the data from the phone and the exif which is an exchangeable image file format that contains information such as the file's format, the time, the date, the GPS. It's got all of that. So, like, you know when you post a photo on Instagram and you go to pick your location and it already knows where you took it? Yeah, it's like, obviously you took this in wherever. And you're like, yes, but okay. That's this type of file. So, she was really intrigued how they use that information and matched it up with images from this dog and she had a background in it and she felt that she could help find the person who murdered the kittens so the group started it's growing it's a growing group and everyone in there is starting to throw around theories and they would look at objects in the the killer's room that you could see on the video you know they saw the bedspread that was decorated with an image of a wolf so where was it sold where did this person buy it there were voices in the background that sounded like they were Russian. Were they really voices? Were they really Russian? They would even look at the walls, look at the electrical outlets. Is this Europe? Is this North America? What part of the world is this? And they would pursue any visual clue that might help them identify whoever this was in the green hoodie. Eventually, this kitty video was seen by Sia Barbie. So she's one half of the Barbie twins, and they were sister models who gained fame in 1991 after they posed for Playboy. Sia was also a longtime animal advocate, and along with her twin sister Shane, 
they had recently lobbied online for the Animal Crush Video Prohibition Act, which sought to ban sexual fetish videos featuring people, mostly women, crushing small vertebrae animals with high heels or bare feet. And yeah, you told me about this. Yeah. So they were behind the bill to like get rid of that or the act. So the bill passed in November 2020 at uh, 2010. <laughs> um Twin. yeah, I mean, I, the twins passed in 2020. <laughs> the twins passed in 2020. In 2010 and this again raised the twins profile. Like people knew about them, the media knew about them, and they were known as enemies of animal abuse videos, which honestly I we mean, should it's... all be, by the way. <laughs> I mean, for real, for the, if you're not, and if you can't be labeled as an enemy of animal abuse videos, th- that's it. Second off, they're the reason why 2010 became 2020. That's true. So, Sia Barbie joined the Vacuum Kitten Killer Facebook group under an al- God, under an alias. I just wish there was a better. I, I mean, obviously, yeah, that's what it is. That's what happened. I just hate it and hate being reminded that that happened. I know. I know. I agree. So she joined under an alias, Lee Madison, and she informed the group that she had media connections that could help spread the word. So she then reaches out to Joe Pans Panzarella, who had already seen the video. And Panzarella is one of the leaders of Rescue Inc., which is a collection of bikers who fight against animal abuse on Long Island there in New York. And it's a pretty big group, and they're pretty, like, intense, like, hard-nosed bikers. At this point, the Facebook group is going crazy with buzz of who the kitten killer could be. Admins are, like, having to quickly review and delete posts with profiles of alleged killers. Like, you know, members of the group are posting things like, I think this is the person in the green hoodie. I think this is. And the admins are like, no, 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 no. We're not taking someone down like this. So they're deleting them. Good on them. Of, yeah, I mean, they this was legit for them. Like, the, they were trying to help find this. And so any accusations that were out of line without fact are like, uh-uh. I'm also just like, this is a group of people who at this point is a former Marine or former like military person in Maryland, a 14 year old in like Michigan, an IT woman from the West Coast and a former model. Like what a random ass group of people who all have this same fucking badass mission of being like no we're not gonna fucking stand for this well and the group is huge there's a ton of people in the group it's not just them but like you're absolutely right it's this group of people who found this common thing that they're like no we're in this together so there was one member who found a profile of a facebook user who was calling himself jamesy crams a lot in his ass and are you fucking kidding me so Obviously, that is just a bad person in general. Obviously, not Jamesy's real name. Um, but... Uh, but what if it was? Then it would be fine, because... It's a family name. Jamesy was not a good person. Jamesy had posted a video on his Facebook page of a cat in a cage being set on fire. Oh! And the photos on his profile were of a teenage boy with a similar facial feature to... Whoever was in this blurry green hoodie um, in the video. I don't care if it is him or not in the video. Arrest him for that. Arrest him for everything. Why? Why? Why hurt animals? I know. Go to therapy instead. 
go to the gym and hit a punching bag. Like, what the fuck? This one's horrible, and I should have, and listeners, I'm sorry, I should have uh, given a spoiler, or not a spoiler, but like a, a trigger warning for animal abuse. Yeah. So this one, it's this is bad. Um, So Panzarella, along with the Barbie twins, they came up with this plan to bring Jamesy out in the open. And so they enlisted a member of Rescue Inc., who also happened to be a grade school teacher and a female bodybuilder. So she's, like, a very attractive woman. And so she starts this, like, Facebook dialogue with Jamesy. And she wanted to attempt to appeal to his really, like, narcissistic ego. And she's hoping that he's going to reveal himself, like, who he really is. And it worked. Jamesy said he was the person in the cat-killing video. And so, you know, Panzeram, or Panzarella, um, this is not Carl Panzeram, that's a serial killer, um, That's a little so Panzarella, like, and the Barbie twins, they're like, hey, yo, no, we know who this is. Like, this this is the guy in the video. But the group, again, like, being, they, they want to make sure, they want they wanted more proof. It wasn't just a troll. It's like, we yeah. he says he's that person, but how do we know? So less than a day after the group publicly identified Jamesy as the culprit behind One Boy, Two Kittens... Niece Punk, who was a number, another member of the Facebook group, received a Facebook message from a user named Beverly Kent. And the message said, The name of the kitten vacuumer you were looking for is Luca Magnata. As it turns out, this message actually came from Luca himself. He had been in the Facebook what? group that was devoted to his own capture for three weeks. And he would watch users toss out new theories, discuss every clue in the video... He was loving this. He was there the whole fucking time. Yeah. Or I guess the past three weeks. But how is that not a thing that they could have thought of? I mean, I guess, uh, why would you assume that this rando person who made this video post that you're trying to find, like, why would they join the group or whatever? But yeah. Also, what would you have done differently even knowing that? Exactly. And so through a lot of investigation and sleepless nights, these online sleuths had identified Luca as the kitten killer by January 2011. So remember, he posted the video in December 2010. So they really were like spending so much time on this. I mean, so it's like two months. Yeah. Like of them just working their asses off and they figure it out. Yeah, and they had amassed an incredible amount of information to bring him down. It had not been hard for them to track him down because he'd done everything he could to build up his online presence, like we talked about earlier. He even created Wikipedia pages about himself twice, created his own fake fan pages, and spread those rumors that I mentioned earlier that he was dating serial killer Carla Homolka. And... Oh my god. Honey, no one cares about you, and that's fine. Yeah. It is fine to not be famous. Well, and it's like, yes, there was a ton of stuff online for him, but it's because he made it. Yeah, but there can be a billion web pages about you. If no one's looking at them, what the fuck matters? That's true. So the sleuths that were hunting Luca, they speculated that he'd also killed the cats for the attention. And one of the sleuths said, there's this unwritten rule of the internet. It's called Rule Zero, and it's you don't mess with cats. Another added, what better way to get famous than fuck with cats? Because it's true. Like, cats are all over the internet. You do something... I mean, yeah. And honestly, this should be any any animal cruelty. I mean, but it's... I get it. It's rule zero. So all of these citizen detectives, they had a name. They had a face. 
But they were missing a location. They had no idea where Luca actually was. And because of that, and the fact that it was someone killing kittens, which unfortunately is, you know, law enforcement has a lot of other things on their plates. This was not something that the law enforcement agency was going to give them time or effort to help find this person. The group even tried to lure Luca out themselves. And again, I told you, they've got some pretty high profile people. They knew Luca was in porn and wanted to be famous. So they were trying to lure him out with offers of a movie deal with Ron Jeremy. But when Ron Jeremy started to really understand the gravity of the situation, he backed out. He was like, no, I'm not going to. Because the, the way, like, they actually reached out to Ron Jeremy because, like, the Barbie twins and whatnot, they knew him. And yeah. so they had reached out and, you know, there was going to be this moment where he would be alone with Luca before, like, people came in the room to, like, bust him. And Ron Jeremy was like, actually, like, fuck, no, I'm not doing this. I'm not, I'm not putting myself in this situation. Fair. So a couple of the people in the group, um, Muvan, who was the IT person from the West Coast, and this guy who was going by, like, John Green, they ended up splitting into their own Facebook group to get away from all this chaos that's happening in the original group. And the fact that they yeah. also knew that Luca was in there. They were like, mm we don't know who of these people is him, we don't know what's real, we don't want to reveal what we know, so we're starting our own group. Through some further image sleuthing, they found Luca's location. And this was enough concrete information to be taken seriously by the authorities. There was one photo where Luke is like on a balcony or whatever, and they identified the apartment building that he was in and where it was. So in January 2011, Muvan and Green contacted the Ontario branch of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, SPCA, and they delivered a large amount of, or they delivered like this large document that had evidence from the video, comparisons of known photos of Luca with stills from the video, and reasons they believed that he was in Toronto. SPCA investigations and communications officer Brad Dewar, he was receptive and he was like, oh yeah, we're going to start working on this. And he wanted to reach out to the Toronto police. So... He gets the police involved and they go to the apartment complex where the image um, that Green and Muvan had used to ID Luca was taken. And they confirmed that Luca did live there, but he moved out two years prior. He left no forwarding address and so the trail went cold. They only knew his location because of the photo and he was no longer there. So they didn't know where he is anymore. And then on December 2nd, 2011, so this is about a year from the first Kitty video... Another video was posted titled Python Christmas, and it was from an account registered in Islington, England. After this, another video was posted. So Green and Muvan and the rest of the detectives began to research these new videos. They found that Facebook pages discussing these videos had been set up a month earlier, and pictures of the cats were posted in November as well. So like live cats, like just the kitties. So this was Luca's M.O. He was trying to create buzz around it. So they were like, this is fucking him. So they found that Magnata is posting more videos and so they needed to find his location. They then found a photo of him in front of Buckingham Palace. And at this time, you know, they'd looked at tons of photos of Luca and he had photoshopped himself into landmarks before. But as it turns out, he really was in England in December of 2011. So 
these web sleuths, they contacted the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Um, and on December 8th, a Sun UK reporter named Alex West tweeted to Luca, If you want to talk, follow me and I'll DM you. Magnata, again, someone from the press is reaching out. Hell yeah. So he ends up going to the Sun newsroom to deny any of these allegations that he had killed any of the kittens. And then after that at the newsroom, Alex Weston found him at a pub that he was staying above. So he's like down drinking wherever he was staying. And they conducted a 20 minute interview. And Alex West did not post this on the site. And West said later that Luca was without a doubt one of the most disturbed and disturbing individuals he had ever encountered. And then on December 12th, an email from someone calling himself John Kilbright, which is one of the names of the infamous Moore's victims, and you did the Moore's murders, so he's using that name. He sends an email to the son. And the email ended with this. So I have to disappear for a while until people quit bothering me. But next time you hear from me, it will be in a movie I'm producing that will have some humans in it, not just pussies. I will, however, send you a copy of the new video I'm going to be making. Once you kill and taste blood, it's impossible to stop. Green and Muvan began feverishly analyzing all of this new activity. But again, Luca had disappeared. They lost track of him. After months and months of searching, they located Luca again, this time in Montreal. But the police there said they were not taking this seriously. They pulled metadata, they being uh, Green and Muvan, they pulled metadata from his animal torture pictures and shared it with the police, and they wanted to stop him before he killed a human being. Yeah. They begged the authorities for help, reminding them that serial killers from Jeffrey Dahmer to Ed Kemper began their reigns of terror by torturing and killing animals. And we have talked about this over and over. This is part of the McDonald triad. And and I mean, because you torture an animal doesn't mean you're going to be a, a serial killer. But by God, it is a major step in that direction and you're still doing something so fucking sick yeah i mean i feel like of the three of bedwetting setting fires torturing animals i mean that's i feel like that's the key you're killing a lot of people thing yeah i mean lots of people wet the bed and lots of people like fire i mean i feel like setting fires it, it depends on the thing yeah. if you're like i'm a boy scout and i like holding a stick and watching it burn it's like okay or if you're like i burned my house down when i was a child okay well that's a little different but torturing animals i feel like the other two can have so many qualifying factors yeah at its core torturing animals is hurting something i mean that's literally like what it is yeah it is that is horrifying i will say i think a big part of things like this can often be when the authorities don't necessarily understand or are not on the same level of the technology that the people providing information are because yeah while police are obviously on facebook and obviously they have a lot of technologically advanced you know they have forensic analysts and everything at their disposal there are a lot of things that if you're being told like 
this proves the case because you can see the JPR in this image registers at a 57 and it's the same here. It's like, if that doesn't mean anything to you, I mean, if you tried to go back 40 years from now and explain how DNA 100% convicts, you know, this person is doing the murder, they'd be like, okay, but I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I don't understand this technology and what this is, so. I mean, I get what you're saying. They are, like, current day law enforcement. They're not stupid. They're not IT people either. No. But, well, that that's well, that's exactly what yeah. I'm saying. Like, they're not IT people. So coming to them with this bank of knowledge where this, you know, piece of code does link and they're like, I mean, that wouldn't mean anything to me. I That wouldn't mean anything to people outside of, like, the IT profession or something like that. So, yeah, I mean, of course, it's not going to be as <gasps> gasp. Well, and for this law enforcement agent, agents, they were just saying it's just cats. Green and Movin were oh. like, come on, this guy is going to turn around and kill somebody. And they were just poo-pooed. They were like, hey, just, we have other things to focus on. Which again, like I said, that's not, not the case. But also, yeah, mm, they really should have taken this seriously. I mean, yeah, but it, I can totally see where they come from as like, how do you rate the level of precedence? So. And this is always going to happen. I don't fault these officers for not doing anything i mean it really fucking sucks that they didn't but they do have a caseload to balance and this is not at the top when they're they've got murders and stuff that have already happened that they have to solve i mean yeah but it sucks that they didn't listen because at 5 a.m on may 26th green's phone starts buzzing and he's getting an incoming facebook message and it's from someone that says hey You might want to see this video. I think it's that Luca guy you've been looking for. So after Green watches the video, One Lunatic, One Ice Pick, he logged onto his private Facebook group that he and Movin had made, and he's talking about the video. So alerted by Green, hundreds of amateur detectives, they set transfixed in front of their computers. Some of the people watching this video were attempting to identify the dark figure in the video. Others were trying to see if maybe this body was fake. Like, is this just some horror video? And so, of course, Luca Magnata, he had killed someone, just as everyone had feared he was going to do. Everyone in these groups. This is something that they knew was the next step. So once the video of Lin June's death was confirmed authentic, police began hunting for the killer. After the janitor found the suitcase with the torso um, at Magnata's apartment building, police searched the scene. They recovered the human remains, bloody clothes, papers identifying the subject, as well as various sharp and blunt objects from this back alley area. Footage from the surveillance cameras inside the building showed a suspect bringing numerous garbage bags outside. And the images matched a suspect captured on video at the post office in Cote Denise. So, because again, remember, the body parts were being sent in the mail. It did not take police long to arrive at Magnata's apartment in the building, where they found blood on the mattress, in the bathtub, in the refrigerator, and in other places. And then inside the closet, written in red ink, it said... If you don't like the reflection, don't look in the mirror. I don't care. 
So Luca wasn't there, but they knew they had their killer. And after they matched the torso with the remains that had been mailed all over Canada, police also fully knew what had become of the victim. By that point, Magnata had already fled to Paris under his own name, which easily allowed authorities to trail him. He then took a bus to Berlin and police kept on his trail. An arrest warrant was issued by the Service de Police de la Ville de Montreal, and he was later upgraded, or this was later upgraded to a Canada-wide warrant by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Remember when I thought it was Mountain Police? I do. I do remember. Every time I see the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, I think about how I thought it was Mountain. And it's just one of those, you know, sometimes when you think for such a long time that it's one word and you find out that it's another and your life is like just forever changed. I, yeah. I also just think it's interesting that they're not known as like, oh, the RCMP. Like we know the FBI. The FBI is so colloquial, even more so than Federal Bureau of Investigation. It's true. But I'm like, why aren't they the RCMP? I mean, maybe they are in Canada, and we're just Americans being like, <laughs> why is this a thing? And it absolutely already is. Yeah, but... sorry if it is, you guys. Um, <clears throat> they're the Mountain Police. No, but so this warrant was accusing Luca of five separate crimes. First-degree murder, committing an, indig- an indignity to a dead body, Publishing obscene material. Yeah, like, no fucking joke there. Yeah. Mailing obscene, indecent, immoral, or scredulous material. And criminally harassing Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper and several unnamed members of Parliament because of all these packages. Yeah, well, I assume they, yeah. So on June 4th, they found Luca at an internet cafe in Berlin. When police came in... Luca was Googling his own name, looking up his fame. He was getting off so much on the fact that everyone knew what he did. Fuck him. I know. His identity was confirmed through fingerprint evidence, and Luca appeared in a Berlin court on June 5th, 2012. There was sufficient evidence to keep him in custody until extradition, and he agreed to a simplified process. And so finally, on June 18th, 2012, Luca was delivered to Canadian authorities in Berlin and was flown aboard a Royal Canadian Air Force CC-150 Polaris to Maribel International Airport, which was just north of Montreal. And so military transport was needed because of safety concerns uh, with using any type of commercial flight and potential legal difficulties if the plane was diverted to another country. So if they would have put him on a regular yeah. like, for the safety of everyone on there, and honestly, for him, they, they had to use military well, flights. I mean, yeah, that and if, you know, they'd been on a plane, like, oh shit, this is getting diverted to Ireland. And Ireland, for some reason, does not want to extradite people. They're going through a bad day they don't feel like it, then, well, shit, we're fucked. Yeah. So Luca was placed in solitary confinement at a detention center. But at this point in time, the packages are still coming. A note was found with the package sent to the Conservative Party stating that a total of six body parts have been distributed and that the perpetrator would kill again. 
Notes were also included in the other three packages, but police declined to disclose what they said, citing concerns about possible copycats. And on June 5th, a package containing a right foot was delivered to St. George's School and another package containing a right hand to False Creek Elementary School in Vancouver. Both of these schools were opened as normal the following morning, and it was confirmed that both of the packages were sent from Montreal. On June 13th, the four limbs and the torso were matched to Lin Jun using DNA samples from his family. On July 1st, his head was recovered at the edge of a small lake in Montreal's Agrignon Park after police received an anonymous tip. So it took over two months, or over a month, to find all of the parts and to identify who this was. Yeah. So it's one of those things that it's 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 crazy to me to think about. They knew the killer before they knew the victim. They ID'd the killer before they ID'd the yeah. victim. Yeah, which that doesn't... It doesn't happen often. Happen. But, like, it's because Luca wasn't hiding where he went. He was using his name. And because of these badass internet sleuths that knew he was gonna yeah. fucking do this. So on April 12th, 2013, Luca Magnata was indicted on charges of first-degree murder, offering indignities to a human body distributing obscene materials, using the Postal Service to distribute obscene materials, and criminal harassment. And his trial didn't begin until late 2014, because we know these things take time, as much as we hate it. But, I mean, he yeah. was in prison before his trial. Like like I said, he was in solitary confinement. Yeah. Magnata said that he and Lin Jun were lovers, sharing a night together when a black car outside filled him with a conviction that Lin Jun was a secret agent. Tie him up. Cut it. He heard a voice tell him. He said, do it. He's from the government. So after Luca supposedly hears these voices, he then slit Lin Jun's throat and chopped up his body. Magnata said that the voices told him to give it back to the government, and that's why he was mailing the body, the body parts to government offices. It's hard to say if Luca is telling the truth with any of this. The details yeah. and the, the organization of his crimes, it, he wasn't disorganized at all. He was an organized killer. So like a psychiatrist said, he was having anything but disorganized thought. Like he planned this all out. And other analysis said that Luca knowingly committed the crime for the attention and, for, and that for him, the problem was simply that negative attention is better than no attention at all. Uh, no, it's not, dude. That is false. And so Luca said, something forced me to do it. It just gave me this weird energy. Something just happened in my brain. And this is what he said to a psychiatrist when he was waiting on his trial to begin. His jury, though... They did not accept his insanity defense that they had presented at trial. And so in December 2014, they found him guilty on all counts and sentenced him to life in prison. Fuck yes. So he's in jail forever or in prison forever. If you, for some reason, want to hear more about this case and more about like the details of the trial and, and all of this, there is a three-part documentary series Um that's more so about the online sleuths who helped track him down and it's coming to Netflix. It launches on December 18th, uh, which is next week. And it's titled don't fuck with cats hunting an internet serial killer. 
I love that. I will not watch it because I got more than enough info from what you've said. So, but I fucking love that. And I love that it focuses on the internet sleuths, the heroes of the case, because I feel like so many true crime documentaries or true crime things focus on the killers yeah. or the the people who do this. And it's like, yeah, you know, it's cool to see Zac Efron as Ted Bundy, but should that be the focus of this? Yeah. Like, I, I have a big problem with true crime stuff that doesn't make the victim the primary focus because if you're not doing that what the fuck are you doing like what's the point that that's something that we both always strive to do in these episodes is try to you know make sure that the victim is central to the case because it's about them Mm -hmm. they're the important person in this the person who had this done to them the person who did it they're a fucking monster. Fuck them. Yeah, well, and, like, Lin Jun's family was obviously completely destroyed. Completely. Yeah. Um, And this case, it, it has a lot of similarities to Issei Sagawa. Because um, you remember yeah. he chopped up his classmate. He was, like, a full-on cannibal, and this didn't have that aspect necessarily. But, like, he put her body parts yeah. in suitcases and just... So, we've also talked about the potential influence that killers get from other killers, and you can tell that Luca was a, like I said, highly, highly disturbed individual, and that he was taking notes. And what I love about this case is how the community came together, and how armchair detectives helped solve this they saw what was coming and they were doing everything in their power to prevent it now it's unfortunate they didn't but they did everything they could they didn't stop they kept going it's just very admirable the thing is with the speed that he was growing in the crimes he committed they did save the next victim that would become i mean they didn't listen soon enough someone was murdered but they stopped more people from being killed because they didn't have to start from nothing right and also like i said the police were already on lucas trail like they had all this information that the armchair detectives had given them Mm -hmm. so when this happened luca was already on their list it's why they were able to catch him so quickly yeah so um with that i don't want to talk about Luca anymore, uh, but let's jump into postmortem. Yes. So I think for this episode, obviously your case won postmortem. I mean, hands down, yours was the most intense. I hate how intense it was. Researching this one was a very difficult. There were multiple times during your case, multiple times that I said out loud that I was like, I'm done. I don't want to hear anymore. And... I mean, obviously, I have to hear the rest. That's how this works. But mine was horrible. Mine was a child, a four-year-old, getting hit by a car and no justice happening for almost 50 years. Your case was the kind of unimaginable torture and horror of both a person being tortured to death and animals that... Mine is the kind of case that a movie could be made about it. Yours 
is not. Mine is not. You know, a documentary on Netflix about the the people who discovered it, yes, but no. I mean, that that is something that nobody could see. And the fact that because it was on the internet, because it, these videos were posted, people did see it. I know. It was, it was real for, I don't know, thousands, however many fucking people saw these. Yeah. So, no, with that, I, I think your case definitely was the more intense. I, yeah, I hated this case. Um, it, there were a couple of times when I was like, I don't know if I can actually do this one, but it just wholeheartedly encapsulated the topic and how a lot of this information was discovered through armchair detectives. And again, like I said, with the way today's world is, I think that's a big thing that should be acknowledged. And I'm not saying like, we're all going to solve a crime or whatever, but these people did everything they could. And even their best effort, it didn't prevent Lin Jun's death, but it did prevent others, like you were saying. So, okay. Um, you can pick our topic again. And... I will. I kind of want us to take a second to talk about something that's not crazy and horrible for me in this episode. So... Agreed. So, let's talk about our favorite part about Christmas. My favorite part about Christmas is... This is going to get sappy, but I've also completely finished my entire <laughs> bottle of wine, so that's what it is. But um, you, me, and our sister driving between, actually, is my favorite memory. Because it's one of those things that Christmas is always something that is very busy, very hectic, very family, very like, ah, hey, I haven't seen you in a year. And you're like, hi, hello, okay, bye. Yeah. Like, it's it's just a lot and Christmas, I mean, everything's a lot. There's a lot of sights, there's a lot of lights, there's a lot of smells, there's just a lot of shit going on. There's so rarely moments to just sit and, I don't know, be there, be present. Yeah. And, you know, we, for my basically entire life, for you a little bit less so, but, you know, our Christmas has always involved, you know, Christmas Eve and Christmas morning at Mama's. And then driving down to Christmas Day at Daddy's. And the drive, especially when it's been just us three. I mean, I love our parents. They're amazing. But when it's just us three, that's one of the few moments of us to just really sit there and talk or just hang out or listen to music and sing along to it and just have that kind of moment where it's the three of us doing our thing. And it's three and a half hours of just us together. And that always is and always has been one of my favorite Christmas pieces of my Christmas. I love. You're not allowed to cry. Don't do that. (laughs) I love that. That's such a, that is very heartwarming. And I remember all of those trips. They're wonderful Mm -hmm. and fantastic. Um, One of my favorite things about Christmas is kind of no longer a thing, but kind of still is. But uh, it also has to do with the three of us, just like Christmas Eve into Christmas Day. And so it's the part before we transition into, we have a very extended Christmas, and we always have, where it lasts for quite a bit of time. And it's hard for me to pick just one thing that I love, because 
I love so many things. I love Christmas morning, waking up at Mama's, and then going and having, you know, Christmas afternoon and dinner with our dad and stepmom and our stepbrothers and just, but I'm not going to go that big. I'm going to, I'm going to look at like the, the tiny little joy moments and it's on Christmas Eve when me, you and Sydney would stay up every year watching a Christmas story. You definitely rained on my parade when you told me you later hated that movie, but you know what? I will say you have still sat down and watched it with us as much as you hate it. And like, so like that's, I mean, I know this is tiny, but it's like, that's what Christmas is about. Sacrificing and doing things that maybe aren't what you want, but because someone else, that's what they find joy in. You're like, you know what? Whatever. It's two hours. I know this movie. I can basically quote the whole damn thing. I'm tired of it, but my sisters love it and I want to spend time with them. Is how I take that. I mean, that's 100% real. (laughs) I absolutely hate the movie. Um, The only Christmas movie that I do not hate, and to be fair, I have not watched it in years, so I guess current opinion pending. But that would be like The Grinch, like How the Grinch Stole Christmas with Jim Carrey. That one I enjoy. have not seen it in a long time. Probably am not going, like, I'm going to continue not seeing it, just not to ruin it. Because I, I feel like movies based around holidays have always the most basic splinter plot that sucks. <laughs> oh my god. And it's like, oh, it's Christmas. I mean, it'll be a story of, like, a boy who is living with his aunt and his dog is sick. But it's Christmas. And you're like, that's not a story. Oh my god. Okay, Hallmark. You love the Grinch because you are the Grinch. I mean, that's real. <laughs> but something the Grinch wouldn't say is I think one thing that's really unique and really amazing about our Christmas is that on Christmas Day, we actually get to see, like, our, like, all of our family. Yeah. We see our mom, we see our dad, stepmom, all of our siblings. I mean, yeah. We get to, everyone gets to be a part of it that day, and I really enjoy that. So, listeners, before we get into whatever we're about to get into, tell us about your favorite holiday traditions, whether you celebrate Christmas or Hanukkah or the winter solstice, Kwanzaa. Eid is in June, but there's, you know, tell that's still a holiday. What is your favorite holiday traditions? It doesn't have to be in... Uh, December or even in the winter, but uh, we all have so many different stories and so many different pieces of us that make us who we are and are so important to us. And tell us about what they are for you. I love that. That was beautiful. But um, also while you're doing that, make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It is the giving (laughs) season. (laughs) And you can give us those reviews because (laughs) um it really does help other people find us it helps us move up in the rankings and um i mean it's it's one of my favorite things to do when i see we have a new review on apple Podcasts, i get to read it i get to actually hear y'all's voice see what y'all think I mean, it's it's amazing. Love it. And while you're at it, like I mentioned earlier, we're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Be sure to like and follow us. Interact with us. Send us messages. We always respond. We always see what you say. And we love getting to talk to you guys. So p- please follow us. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you all so, so much for tuning into this episode, for listening to us. And we love y'all. And... This is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.